pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, it is good to sing to Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, to think of uh, you in that way, three in one. And uh, as we come to the end of our study in the book of Ezra, we understand that the Spirit has breathed out the Word of God to us. And as we have sought to return and rebuild, we ask, Spirit, for your ministry among us today. Be with us as we study and work through Ezra chapter 10, and be with us as we think about how we apply Ezra to our lives as a whole. We need you, lost without you. We appeal to you. Spirit, come upon us with power. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to be partaking of communion later today, so you should have gotten one of these as you came in or out in the back, so that's something to look forward to. So I'm, uh, I'm 14 years old. I'm uh, sitting on my front lawn with a friend of mine. It's an evening, Friday or Saturday evening, and we were a little bored. So boredom and teenage boys sometimes don't go together really well. In fact, that can be a combustible combination. Boredom and teenage boys. So I'm 14, and we're sitting on the lawn. We're wondering what to do, and we're sitting right next to this peach tree, which was on the front of our lawn, and it was a little bit overripe, at least the peaches were. And I don't know who had the idea, but one of us thought this up. Wouldn't it be cool, wouldn't it be fun to get some peaches and go over by the side of the road and throw peaches at cars? (laughs) Wouldn't that be fun? I don't think we were the first to think of something like that. Um, You know, so Isaac Newton, supposedly, according to legend, was sitting near near the apple tree, and an overripe apple kind of fell down, and he gets this great idea. Oh, maybe there's something like gravity, according to legend. And we get the idea to go throw peaches at cars. So uh, we went out there, and we did that, and we had a lot of fun, unfortunately. We heard the thwap of of the peach against the car. Boy, that was great. But that thrill wasn't enough, and so we wanted a little bit of more more of a thrill, so we kind of dreamed up the idea that, oh, wouldn't it be fun if we could get somebody to stop and chase after us? (laughs) And so we did that. We kind of showed ourselves and got people to chase after us a couple of times. We were really in no danger because there was a secret escape hatch in this fence by the orchard that we could go into my friend's backyard. But what happened is another guy got wind of it and came along and joined us. And then there were some other friends who got sort of inspired by us. And they formed this renegade peaching group. And they were going out and they were throwing peaches at cars as well. There was a little crossover between our group and the renegade group. But I never went into the renegade group at all. But this shows how sin can spread. (laughs) You're sitting on the front lawn and you get this idea. And wouldn't this be fun? And you do this and it is fun. But then that fun... There's not enough thrill in that, so you're going to need more thrill, and then other people get wind of it, and it spreads through the neighborhood. It spreads through the camp, so to speak. We heard last week from Paul Taylor, based on Ezra chapter 9, that we need to take sin seriously, not least because sin, once it gives birth, can spread through the camp, so to speak, can spread through the church. So we pick up the story. This is part two of the story in Ezra chapter 10, in which we understand how we are going to go about taking sin seriously, especially as we understand how Ezra 10 takes us to the New Testament. So in Ezra 9, the problem is, is that the Israelite men, many of them, had married foreign women, foreign women who worship other gods. This is a problem. 
What's to be done about that? In Ezra chapter 10, Ezra, who was a priest and a scribe and a leader in Israel, he takes drastic measures. So we need to take drastic measures or understand what that's all about this morning. So at the end of uh, my sermon proper on Ezra chapter 10, I'm going to think back on our whole series in Ezra, which we have titled Return and Rebuild. So how are we going to return in the midst of the pandemic and rebuild? I have a few reflections at the end of Ezra 10 to think about that as well. Okay, but for now, we are in Ezra chapter 10, and we're going to begin at verse 1, looking first of all at verses 1 to 5. Ezra 10, 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly over this sin. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took an oath. So here's the problem with marrying foreign women. They uh, worship other gods, and if you marry the foreign women, then you are going to be drawn away to worship the other gods as well. And your faithfulness to, is, to the God of Israel is going to be uh, put at risk. And if this happens throughout the camp, then as it has, then this puts a lot of things at risk in Israel at this particular time. So they went into exile in the first place. God sent them into exile because of idolatry, because of their persistent insistence on worshiping other gods decade after decade, century after century, until God finally says, enough, I'm going to send you into exile. So the Babylonians conquer the Israelites, and the Israelites, or at least many of them, go into exile, and then they come back from exile in order to rebuild the temple. But now we've got the problem all over again. The people are dabbling in idolatry again, putting God's plans at risk. Nevertheless, Shechaniah, this fellow Shechaniah says, there is hope for Israel. There is hope for Israel if we take these drastic measures that I am proposing. And indeed, he proposes that all of the Men who have married foreign women divorce those women. And he says this to Ezra, who was a leader in Israel, and says, it's your job now to, to, to move with this, and we'll be with you, but you need to take a stand, and you need to command the people to divorce all of their foreign wives. Again, a pretty extreme proposal. So how do we relate it to today? Well, uh, first of all, let's think about this. If you're following Jesus today... And if you're single, and if you'd like to be married, who do you want to be married to? Well, I know this is a challenge in a lot of ways, but you want to be married to a believer. If you believe in Jesus, you want to be married to someone who also believes in Jesus. Because if your purpose is to know God and to glorify him forever, and if you're going to be married, you need to be married to someone who shares that purpose. Otherwise, your purpose is going to be thwarted and you will be drawn away to worship other gods, so to speak. Or there's going to be serious confliction that you're going to have to deal with, serious temptation. So seek for a believer to marry. Now, this is a challenge. I know this is limiting the pool, 
But this is important because if you're following Christ, Christ is going to meet your needs, whether that's a wife, a husband, or not. So as, as you are looking, if you're single, as you're looking for a spouse, think of these priorities in this order. Faith, character, feelings. Number one, faith. Look for a person of faith. Number two, look for character. Look for the character that emerges from this faith. Not just a good person, but the character being rooted in faith. If there is true faith, there is going to be character. And finally, feelings. Feelings are not unimportant. They're a factor. But if you can't put that at the front of the line to say feelings are the most important. Faith, character, feelings. Now, I, I understand that this is really hard, and this is going to be a challenge, and I understand that it's not easy to be single when you'd like to be married. This is some, for some people, it's easy, but for a lot of people, it's hard and it's difficult. But I want you to know that this is a precious, sacred journey, that, that it's you and God here on this, and, and some others as well, who are, and, and you're working together, you're working with the Lord, you're seeking him. Something is being forged between God and you that is very precious, now, as many of you know, that I, I, I walked a long journey in this path as a single person, and uh, maybe I have a little bit of credibility that I can speak to this issue, maybe not on some other issues, but this one I think I have some credibility. And I've walked alongside many single people sort of on this whole journey, and I'm happy to do that with you as well. So make an appointment. I'm happy to meet with you. Make an appointment with Rob or someone else. If this is something that's really important to you, that you're single, you'd like to be married, how do you go about that? We have a, a lot of pastors here at the church who'd be happy to meet with you on this issue or any issue for that reason. We're here for this reason, to, to preach the word and to meet with you. That's basically it. So make an appointment. We're happy to meet with you. But what if you have already married someone who is not of the faith? You're a believer, and this person you have married is not a believer. Or maybe, maybe when you got married, you thought, okay, this is, this is the deal. This person's a believer. But some years later, the person doesn't want to follow Jesus anymore, or maybe he or she never did. What do you do in that case? We'll take up that question a little bit later. And, or what if you have sinned in some big way? The people of Israel here, in this case in Ezra chapter 10, they sin in a big way. Well, in verses 6 through 8, a proclamation is issued throughout Israel, and all Israel then gathers to Jerusalem. And we pick up the story in verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, which has been rebuilt, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel." Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. So Ezra says to the people who have transgressed, you have increased guilt in Israel. So this is a problem. Guilt is spreading through the land as one after the other of them marries foreign women. And what they have done then is they, they have put at risk God's intention to reestablish them in the promised land. They were exiled from the land in the first place because of idolatry. Now that they're dabbling in idolatry again, they're putting at risk God's plan to reestablish them in the land. So what does Ezra say? Make confession. 
acknowledge this problem, confess before the Lord, and then take action. Put away the foreign wives and their children. Divorce them, in other words. Very extreme uh, proposal that Shechaniah has and that uh, Ezra executes. And again, the, the, the worry is that if they don't do something, this sin is going to spread throughout the land, and the people of God aren't going to be the people of God anymore because they're not going to be worshiping the one true God. They're going to be worshiping other gods. It can start out small, but it ends up big. It can start out with one man marrying a foreign woman, and then you get another and another and another. You start out throwing one peach. You think that's going to be fun. you got to throw another peach. And then you got to get people to chase you. And then other people get the idea that this is a good idea. So sin multiplies upon sin, multiplies upon sin, and spreads through the neighborhood, spreads through the church, spreads through the land. And Ezra wants to put a stop to it, and he needs to do so, especially at this point in Israel's history when they are back in the land and everything's new again. So take sin seriously. We heard that last week. We hear it again. Take sin seriously. There is an enormous pressure in our world for us to forsake biblical values, to say, this isn't true, or maybe to redefine what this really says. Does, does God really say that? Especially in the, in the arena of sexual ethics, there is enormous pressure on us to disregard what the scriptures tell us about sex and gender. The pressure is enormous for us to do that, but it must be resisted. Otherwise, one person gets the idea that this is okay, another person gets the idea, and before you know it, we have adopted non-biblical positions. So that, in the end, um, sin is not only, um, sin is endorsed, it's not only tolerated, but then it's also endorsed. And that's what Paul warns about at the end of Romans chapter 1. Worry about this, and see if you're going to tolerate this, then eventually it's going to get endorsed so that you can't recognize the people of God anymore. You can't distinguish between the people of God and the people of the world. And then you put God's intention for the church to be salt and light in the world at risk. So we don't want that. We want to take sin seriously because sin can spread. Paul, dealing with sin in the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, says this, 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin can spread like leaven through a loaf. So the guys are going out and uh, we're throwing peaches and some other guys, the renegade group is going out. There's some crossover between the two groups. Sin has spread through the neighborhood. I never went out with the renegade group but I heard back from one of my friends who did that one night they went out and the, and the peaches weren't enough thrill anymore. They threw a cherry bomb at a car. Sin can be progressive that way. Now that got my attention. Once I found out that this led to the throwing of a cherry bomb, I decided I'm through with this. I'm done. And I never picked up another peach except to eat one. <laughs> So eventually, I took sin seriously long before I came to Christ. But I recognized the destructive nature of this. Somehow, in my brain, I could picture this and imagine what was happening. And therefore, I stopped throwing peaches. 
So how do the people in Israel respond to all this? Look at verse 12. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. So the people say, they agree. We have sinned greatly. We have transgressed greatly in this matter, so greatly, in fact, and so many men have married foreign women that it's going to take take a long time to sort all of this matter out. In fact, it takes about three months to kind of figure out who are the guilty parties and to execute Ezra's plan. Uh, Nevertheless, there is hope. They hold out hope that the wrath of God, the fierce wrath of God in this matter will be turned aside. If they respond appropriately, perhaps the wrath of God will be turned aside. And God is rightly angry. We want God to be angry at sin because sin is destructive. And if God's not angry about that, Well, this sin just goes on and on and on. It's not dealt with, and humanity disintegrates because of sin. Sin is destructive. God is angry at sin, rightly so. Well, what if we have greatly transgressed? What do we do about that? Verse 18. Uh, Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Messiah, Eliezer, Jerib, Gedaliah, and some of the sons of Jeshua and Josadak and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt, um, and their guilt offering was a, ram, was a ram of the flock for their guilt. So even the priests, or some of the priests, have been caught up in this. Not Ezra. Ezra was a priest. He was a scribe. He sought the Lord. He sought the word of God. He did the word of God. But other priests turned aside from the Lord and married foreign women. Nevertheless, they make a pledge. They pledge to put away their foreign wives, and they make a guilt offering for their sin. So how many are affected by this? Well, we read this list of names following in verses uh, 20 to 43, and if you add everything up, it's about 100 men who have done this, and they are listed here. So um, you can be happy that your sins and your names are not listed anywhere. Gosh, they sin here. Man, your names go in the book, and we're reading about their names back now, now. So you can be happy that you're not living in those times because your sins are not listed here. So it adds up to be about 100 men. So how does the book of Ezra end? Interesting. Look at this, verse 44. All of these, all of these men who are listed here, all 100 of them, These had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Okay, so that's how it ends. And which raises the question, well, what happens to these women now? These women who are divorced, they've been taken from the people of the land, they've been married, they've been married to these people, and now they divorce them, and what happens to them? Ezra doesn't answer the question. That's not his concern in writing this particular book. However, if history is any precedent What happens to these women is they go back to the houses from which they came along with the children. That's probably what happens. We don't know that for sure because Ezra doesn't tell us, but that's what's happened in similar episodes in Israel's history. So with that, 
the book of Ezra comes to an end. Now let me ask you a question. Are you satisfied with the ending? Return and rebuild. Well, okay, yeah, now we're getting to the climax of the whole thing. How, what are we going to do now? All of these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even borne children. The end. Well, isn't that a great story? Isn't that a great way to end it? I don't think so, right? It's not so great. Okay, so let's, I know, let's, let's, let's keep reading in Nehemiah. Let's, let's do that, because Nehemiah is kind of part two. You should see Ezra and Nehemiah as, as really the same story. So Ezra goes, and I mean, Nehemiah goes, and they rebuild the walls, and Ezra's in the book of Nehemiah as well. But then you think, okay, things are going to get better now. You, you get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, and what's happening? The men are marrying foreign women again. So... Um, the Lord sent the people into exile because of their sin, but the exile doesn't solve the problem. Ezra takes these drastic measures, but that doesn't solve the problem. What is needed? Something even more drastic, a different kind of exile. So, what if you are married right now, you're a believer, you love Jesus, and you're married to someone who is not a believer who does not love Jesus. What should you do? Well, you look forward in the book of Nehemiah, and when Nehemiah is facing this issue, he does not propose divorce. Ezra does, Nehemiah doesn't. So it looks like divorce was something that was special or peculiar to Ezra's time based on what was going on in Israel at that time, coming back from exile, being reestablished in the land. But once they're established in the land and it happens all over again, that's not what Nehemiah proposes. So we might get the idea based on Ezra and Nehemiah that divorce, in the case of marrying unbelievers, is not something that is absolutely timeless. Indeed, you come to the New Testament And the Apostle Paul deals with precisely this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he advises people who are married to an unbeliever to remain married to that person because of the possibility that the spirit dwelling in the believer can influence the unbeliever toward Christ. So what happens in the New Testament is we have the spirit who is poured out in us and among us which is so powerful that the spirit in someone can influence someone else toward Christ. So therefore, Paul says, stay married. So that's what I would say to you. If you are married to an unbeliever right now, stay married. And what if we have greatly transgressed? Is there hope for us? What about our guilt before God. And what about the wrath of God, who is justly angry because of sin, because of the destructive nature of sin? The wrath of God doesn't necessarily go away in the New Testament. Listen to Paul, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed. It's upon unrighteousness. What's the answer to this? I'm sure most of you know the answer to the question. It has to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. It has to do with the crucifixion. So we come to the New Testament. We come to the Gospels. We come to the cross. And we're looking at Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And what does he do? He cries out. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the ages are in that cry. So much is in that cry. But think about this. One of the things that is in that cry is exile. Jesus goes into exile. God exiles his son. Jesus goes into exile for us. God forsakes his son. He doesn't forsake us. So if we are guilty before God, Isaiah tells us this about Christ. His, I'm, I'm sorry, if we have transgressed greatly, Isaiah tells us this. But he, that is Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. If we are guilty before God because of our sins, Isaiah tells us this. His soul, that is Christ's soul, makes an offering for guilt. If the wrath of God is justly on us because we merit that, because we have turned away from God, Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, the blood of Christ, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Believe in Jesus. There's hope. Guilt goes away. (laughs) Jesus takes guilt. Jesus takes the wrath of God. And there's hope for us for eternal life. Culminating in this, Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith, believing in Jesus, into this grace, the grace of God, in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope, the sure expectation of the glory of God, meaning that we are going to experience the presence and the glory and the awesomeness of God and Christ and the Spirit culminating in the new creation. We have eternal life. So, friends, hope. Yes, there is hope of the glory of God, of living with Jesus forever in the new creation but it is in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Nothing other than Christ is going to get you there. So what do you do if you have greatly transgressed and you believe in Jesus? Let me offer you this. Confess. That's what they do here in Ezra 10. They confess. Confess. Don't make excuses for it. Don't say, oh, I'm doing this because my parents did this to me. I'm doing this because of the environment I was raised in. I'm doing this because somebody sinned against me, so I do this. And uh, Don't make excuses. Just confess. Just be honest. It's your responsibility. Don't let anyone take that agency away from you to make you a victim. Confess. Then turn. Confess, then turn. Turn to God through faith in Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Confess and turn. And then what? Accept. Accept the forgiveness that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Confess, turn, accept. If you have greatly transgressed, and I know some of you are dealing with some pretty heavy stuff, that's what you need to do. And the Father is waiting for you with open arms. The drastic measures have already been taken. Jesus was exiled for you. You're forgiven. Let the blood of Jesus just cleanse you from all of that. John Newton was a slave trader. 
came to Christ, repented, wrote that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. When he was 82 years old, he was near death, and he said this, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. You may have transgressed greatly. You may be a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Consider the cry of Jesus from the cross again. And listen to it from the perspective of the Father. Listen with the Father's heart, if you can. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're listening to that cry. This is your son. This is your beloved son. What are you going to do when you hear that cry? What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to jump off that throne. I'm going to rescue my son. What am I going to do? I'm going to move heaven and earth to rescue my son. And obviously, God could have done all of those things. He could have moved heaven and earth. He could have jumped off his throne. He could have rescued his son, but he did not. Why did he not? You know the answer. What keeps the father from rescuing his son? It is love. It is love for us. It is love for you. The father is paralyzed. By love for you. Now think about the cry again from the perspective of the son, if you can. Think of it with the son's heart. He cries out from the cross, forsaken by God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just a few moments ago, the bystanders said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He could have come down from the cross. He could have called on 12 legions of angels and come down from the cross. Instead, he cries out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He does not come down from the cross. Instead, he cries out to the Father. Why does he stay on the cross? It isn't the nails. It is love. It is love for us. It is love for you. Jesus is paralyzed by love for you. Is there hope for us? Oh, my. Sin is far more destructive than we know. And God loves us far more than we think. And let me just say to those of you who have not yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder what's holding you back. Can you see this love? Can can you hear that cry on the cross? And can can you hear and understand that that cry is for you? Can you understand, I hate to say it, that the wrath of God is upon you because of your sin, because you are pursuing all of this other stuff? that has nothing to do with God, that is actually against God. You may not think of yourself as a worshiper, but you are. You're worshiping other gods, gods of money and power and sex and success and everything else. Can you realize that's uh, maybe just a little bit like throwing peaches? It's not getting you anywhere. It's actually destructive. Let me urge you, confess your sins. Just say, don't make excuses for it. Just say, there it is. 
Turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus. And you'll have hope. You'll have hope for this eternal life, and you'll have this relationship with this God who loves you so much. It's, it's, it's unimaginable how much he loves us. We're only scratching the surface here. But turn to Jesus, and you'll experience at least some of that, and you'll live your life based on it. Okay, so we've reached the end of Ezra 10. We have reached the end of the book of Ezra. What are we to make of these things? We have called our series in Ezra, Return and Rebuild. They returned from exile to rebuild the temple. We want to return from the pandemic and rebuild our community here. What do we get out of Ezra 1 through 10? I asked Paul Taylor uh, what he thought of the whole thing. We each preached five chapters in Ezra, and he said the most important chapter that he preached was Ezra chapter 3. And in Ezra 3, they return from exile, and the first thing they do is they rebuild the altar. They don't rebuild the walls or the temple proper. They rebuild the altar. They build the altar first. Now, when we did our remodel, we rebuilt the kitchen first. I'm not sure what that says about us, um, but I I do think it says this. We rebuilt the, the kitchen first because we want to feed the community. That's one of the things we're doing in our community. And then... We built the, we, uh, rebuilt the worship center. But all of this tells us, Ezra chapter 3, and I think all of Ezra, is that they made worship a priority. Make worship a priority. And uh, all of life, properly understood, is worship, but there is a central place in this community for a worship service on a Sunday morning. And many of you have returned, many of you are watching online, many of you are outside. Uh, let me emphasize the importance of returning, if you can. I understand there are good reasons for staying away. I also understand there are useful reasons for staying away. You need to decide which is which. We have uh, three worship services, basically, two inside and one outside, so we're making it as easy as possible, as accessible as possible for as many people as possible. But this is a central thing that we do here to rebuild our community, coming here on a Sunday morning to worship the living God in person. And at a certain point, I understand you're going to watch the live stream if, you, if, if that's the thing that works for you, but everyone knows that being in person is better. And, and by the way, just find a way to be with people and find a way to be with people, not on Zoom, if you can. It's so much more powerful just to be with people. Now, if you have to wear a mask, if you have to go outside, if you have to wear a down jacket, whatever you have to do, make a way. Make worship a priority. So I preached five chapters in Ezra, and the most important chapter that I preached was Ezra chapter 7. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, we learn that Ezra set his heart to study the word. And I was intrigued to learn that the word study is probably more accurately translated seek. He set his heart to seek the word. So, seek the word. Especially, seek the God of the word. It is God who reveals himself in the word so that he might be known. So, let's worship God together and let's seek him together in his word. Let's return and let's rebuild. Okay, we're uh, now going to do communion. We're going to come to the table. And uh, here it is. Um, This is uh, 
represents the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the broken body, shed blood. And when you, when you hold this in your hand, I know this is a pandemic version of the whole thing, but uh, when you hold this in your hand, what does this mean? You are holding a lot. <laughs> you are holding a lot in your hand. The broken body, the shed blood. And uh, you're holding the cry of Jesus in your hand. You're holding that in your hand. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is in your hand. He was forsaken for you. So, at the end of our study in Ezra, at the end of our time this morning, I would like us to partake together. We worship the Lord together. We seek him together in his word. Let's partake together, shall we? We need to peel this thing off the top. And take the bread. And you drink the cup. Amen, Lord Jesus. We have hope in you.